you've had the chance to get your Bibles turned to Exodus 19, if you're having trouble or need help, the black Bibles around you, I would encourage you to have them open and ready. We're going to use these things, these Bibles. Uh, page 60, if you want to just look at the page number. I'll reference different passages throughout this message. Say chapter 19, that's the larger number, and then there's these smaller verse numbers around. We've been doing a short mini-series called Encountering God in Exodus. This is the last of those messages. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that this is similar to a vision series that sometimes churches might do in the fall. Uh, new school year, new time to reflect and think what's your purpose. And our purpose as a church is to glorify Christ by making disciples of all nations. The vast majority of you were not in the room five years ago when we had Embassy Church's second ever worship gathering. There we had a similar vision series. Our first service, we talked about what's the gospel. The second, we talked about encountering the holiness of God. And then we talked about making disciples of all nations in the month of November five years ago in 2013. In a very similar manner, for those of you that were there for that second ever service, there's going to be large chunks of that message that I think really apply. And since a lot of you haven't heard it, I'm going to be copying and pasting from that one. So if some of that sounds familiar, you'll know why. But I don't think it was recorded. It's not online. So for a lot of you, this will be the first time you hear it. A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God in his very well-known and popular book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What do you think about when you think about God? And is Tozer making an overstatement? The most important thing about you is what you think about, what comes to mind when you think about God. You may not realize this, but you can look all through the scriptures and see that God thinks about himself quite highly. It's one of the things I love the most about him. He thinks and knows that he is great. He says throughout the scriptures, I am a great God, I am a great king, and I am to be praised. If he wasn't actually as great as he was, you'd think he'd have like an egomania problem, right? But who else would he say to praise? Who else would he say is greater than himself? It's scary to think how many of us, even in Christian circles, might create gods of our own and worship man-made gods rather than the actual God that's revealed in Scripture. So let's turn our Bibles in Exodus chapter 19, read the first six verses to see what God's plan for His people are. The main question, as you see in our sermon title, is can we live with Him? Can we dwell in God's presence? After that, we're going to read the rest of Exodus 19 and see that there's a problem about dwelling with God. And then finally, we're going to see, as we often do at Embassy, let's conclude by seeing Jesus' pain. So if you're taking notes or just want to have a mental outline of this message, God's plan, our problem, Jesus' pain. First, let's read the first six verses of Exodus. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and, into, and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, 
Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. In these first six verses, you're going to get a sense of God's plan actually for the whole world. I wish we could camp just on these verses, but in, in sum, what is God's plan? God's plan is to give life to his people through his presence, so that they will bring life to the world. That's his plan. That's one way to summarize it. I'm sure there's a thousand other ways to maybe word it, but for today's purposes, let's think of it in that way. God brings sustaining and empowering life to his people through his presence, so that then they will bring life to the world. This is the very first picture you get in the Bible of who God is and who we are. It's in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The creator God who speaks life into existence and gives man and beasts and all that lives life, he is the one who dwells with his people. And you may miss this just reading Genesis 1 and 2, but it should not be missed if you read carefully through your Bibles that Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden, is in a mountain, the cosmic mountain. It says all kinds of imagery and symbolism, and it's continually dwelt upon throughout the Old Testament writers. Turn your Bibles back just one page or two over to Exodus 15, and you'll see exactly what I mean about the mountain of God in the Garden of Eden, where God's sanctuary is, where his abode is, where he dwells. Exodus chapter 15, page 57, look at verse 17 and 18. You will bring them in And plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Here I want to just simply point out that the words plant is to, I think, be a reference back to the Garden of Eden when Adam was put or placed or planted into a garden on a mountain, as we see here in this text The abode, the dwelling place of God is a mountain. Read back over sometime later today in Genesis chapter 2. You'll notice that the way that from the Garden of Eden, rivers are giving life to the rest of creation. So they start at the mountain in Genesis 2, and then rivers, four different rivers part from this garden and, and give life, water, and nourishment to the surrounding areas of the wilderness wasteland that we heard about in Genesis 1. That's why I say God's plan is to give life to his people through his presence so that they will give life to the rest of the world. This is foundational in Genesis 1 and 2. You need to kind of connect the dots of mountain imagery and garden imagery because that's exactly what we find in our text. There God is revealing himself on a mountain. The text read for you earlier in the service, Exodus chapter 3. What was the sign that God said, Yahweh said he would show his people? That he would reveal himself on this same mountain after he rescued them and saved them. 
God promised that to Moses in Exodus 3, and here we're seeing his fulfillment of that promise, and you're seeing God again reveal himself in power on a mountain. The people of Israel are to be the streams of living water that flow to the 70 nations. By the way, I asked at the very end of my sermon for some of you to do some homework in Exodus chapter 15, verse 27. If you want to turn your eyes there, I'll read it for you. After they were saved out of Egypt, they're on the other side of the Red Sea, they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is another good example of the imagery of the Bible trying to help you see that the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, the 12 family clans of the people of God, are to be like streams of water, and what are they nourishing? The 70 palm trees in this text. Why 70? Well, go back to Exodus 1, go back to Genesis 11, you'll know that that's a reference to the nations, all the peoples of the earth. So here in our text, do we see that God is bringing his presence on a mountain and he is bringing life to his people. He is speaking life into them so that they would be a blessing to the nations. Well, look back at our text in Exodus 19. Notice how he says in verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Pause right there. This, the purpose of salvation is for God's people to be brought into the presence of God. So often when you and I think about the Exodus story, we have unhelpful Hollywood images from movies. Whether you're an older generation and you think of Charlton Heston or a younger generation and you think the Prince of Egypt cartoon. So often these movies fail to actually point to the main point of the book of Exodus and the stories that we've been going through. What, what is that main point? I just read it. Let my people go. Now Moses, by the way, did not have a nice deep Charleston Heston, let my people go kind of voice. We know that when God told him to do this, he was like, yeah, I'm not really good at speaking. Now, we don't know what that means. Maybe he stuttered. Maybe he had a lisp. He was insecure for sure. And so he goes and says, maybe with a high-pitched voice, let my people go. I mean, we don't know. But here's the part that they missed. Not just the character of the weakness of his public speaking. What do they miss in the movies about what Moses says to Pharaoh? Well, the rest of the sentence, let my people go so that they may worship me, so that they may serve me, that they may dwell in God's presence. You not know, see that the point of salvation is for God not to save people based on their works or their merits or their obedience to the law. Has the Ten Commandments come yet in our story? Just look over. If you don't know your Bibles, they come in chapter 20. He bore them on eagles' wings. What's that a reference to? That they literally got up and they flew on eagles' wings? Well, no, read the story. They walked through dry land. They were saved, and it was as if they were being carried and ushered out. They did nothing to achieve their salvation. Why such grace to these people? So that they can be with God. Bring you to myself. Look at verse 5. Other explanation as to why? What's God's plan? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. This, by the way, is language of a kingly royalty possessions, like his, his uh, own personal bank account, if you want to think of it that way. 
the Pharaoh's great wealth. This is very specific word here about treasured possession. That's why I'm highlighting it. This is not just like, oh, okay, he likes them a lot. It's elevated language. There's grace dripping from these first six verses of God choosing and saving and redeeming a people, not on their basis of their works or what they've done, but so that these people would be his treasured possession amongst all the other peoples of the nations. For all the earth is mine, and you're to be a holy nation as the crossroads of Egypt and Assyria and all the other nations are around Israel. They're to look up to this mountainous place of the land of Canaan where they will one day dwell, and they're to everyone else to see and say, yes, that's the one true God. And all through the Old Testament, you have little stories of the nations coming, like Queen Sheba, if you know that story, coming and bowing down and saying, wow, God's here. That's the purpose and plan of God, to be a kingdom of priests. Typically, when you and I think of priests, you probably think of one or two priests going into a temple or a holy place, a shrine or a sanctuary. This is to be an entire kingdom, a whole nation of priests, meaning that every single person of the people of God in Israel was to be priestly, which I've already preached in previous months and sermon series that that is Adam's role in that sanctuary place of Genesis chapter 2. It's a garden-like priestly function that he has. Anyway, the point is is that this is the plan, not just for Israel. It's the plan for the world. It's for all of humanity. Israel is the new humanity living and fulfilling God's original purpose that he gave to Adam in the first two chapters. You are to be a kingdom of priests, a whole nation of people that are breathing life into the rest of the world. Fast forward to 1 Peter chapter 2, and you hear Peter use this same exact language. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of my own treasured possession, and I have called you out of darkness and into my marvelous light so that you will proclaim my excellencies to the world around you. This is not just an Old Testament idea. This is not just an Israel idea. This is God's plan from Genesis 1 and 2, reaffirmed here in the Exodus story, and then made picture-perfect, high-definition clarity after Jesus comes in the new covenant. This is who we are. This is our mission. To receive the presence of God, to dwell in his presence, that experience will transform and change our hearts in such a way that it will fill us with life and love and the ability to then give blessings to the rest of the people around us, your family members, your friends, your coworkers, your neighborhood, and literally the nations of the world. We should get on airplanes tomorrow evening and fly to the nations and encourage missionary workers to do the work of this to all the nations. Amen? Our mission at Embassy Church is to glorify Jesus Christ by making disciples of all the nations. What are disciples? Well, you could use this language. Priests, a kingdom of priests, ambassadors of the embassy of heaven here on earth, giving life to the people. That's the plan. There's a big problem. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, so follow along in Exodus 19, and you're going to see Hints and glimmers, there's a problem about dwelling in God's presence and being transformed by it. Verse 7, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. 
All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. I mean, abstain from intercourse. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpets grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish and let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now, if we were spending a lot of weeks on this, there's several things I'm sure that you're like, what is going on at some of these points? One quick little hint to try and make sense of this passage is that this is paralleling what you will find later in Exodus about the temple. This is a metaphor, a symbol of the temple, holy of holies, holy place, and then the outer courts of the temple. And you're seeing these different consecrated bifurcations and divisions on the mountain because of what God's teaching them about how he's going to eventually give them the temple. That's not today's message. Today's message is for you to encounter the God who comes down in fire. I mean, that's the obvious point, is it not? Shouldn't that jump out on the page? Look what happens to the people after they hear the Ten Commandments and what their response is in the next chapter over. Look at chapter 20, verses 18 to 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. Is that your response to dwelling in God's presence? Have you ever trembled Do you think you might if you were standing in God's presence? Have you even thought about that? Tozer says the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. 
Do you think about a consuming fire, thunder and lightning, fear and trembling? Now, at this point, this would be a good time to just pause and say, is it just simply that, like, my kids come to me in the middle of the night when there's a big thunderstorm and they're scared? I mean, read this text and you're like, well, that could be it. I mean, that's part of it. But, oh, it's so much more. All of that is to, again, kind of point to the greater reality of the holiness of God and His presence is that consuming fire. And as you will see in just a moment, it's not just about smoke and fire and clouds and thunder. That's not the reason that they're fearing and trembling, ultimately. That's just the outward sign and symbol of all of that, that point to the greater reality. Think of it like this. When I used to live in Washington, D.C., one of the jobs I had was to work amongst collegiate students at George Washington University and Georgetown University. And if you don't know anything about higher education, you might know that Georgetown is one of the more elite colleges to get into on the United States, you know, in the United States. So as I'm doing ministry among students, one of the things that you start to learn about students that get into these elite schools is that in their home school, where they're from, not like they were homeschooled, but where they come from, and they're coming from all over the place. It was one of the more international conglomerates of students that are coming to George Washington and Georgetown because they're really good schools. So people from all over want to get into them, right? You following? So you've got people that from wherever they're at, they are the top 10%, top 5% valedictorian top person in their class. They're the smartest person that they've ever known around them. Like, nobody else is as smart as them. But then they come to D.C. You guys know what's about to happen here? Then they get into a classroom where all the other classmates around them are what? Wicked smart, as my Boston friends might say. They're just really, really smart. So what's the professor going to do when he's giving out grades and some of these kids in there have never gotten a B before? Somebody's got to get a B, right? I mean, you've got to imagine that not all of the work is of equal value. I mean, some are going to get A's because it's better than the other kids. Now it's good, but it's just not as good as the A kids. Some kids might get C's. Do you realize what that does to a human being when all you've ever known is that you're the best and you're the elite? It crumbles a person. It's like a self-quake of like, oh no, my whole identity has imploded on myself. If a human being in the presence of the greater glory of another human being causes trauma where you need counseling and you're having an identity crisis and you're like wanting to give up on life because you're not a straight-A student at Georgetown University. If it does that in that sense... Hopefully you will track for the rest of this message why being in the presence of a supreme being, the creator God, would cause a much greater quake inside the soul. Why people would tremble and fall down. Use whatever other illustration or analogy that might work for you, but hopefully that helps you understand why there is so much trembling and fear. There's a problem, isn't there? God's plan is for God's people to get life from his presence, and as they dwell together, that will bring life to the rest of the world. But if God's plan can't happen because God's people can't dwell in God's presence, well then, what are we going to do? Why can't they come into his presence? And as many of you already know, the answer is because 
of the vast difference, not just in him being creator and us creature, but especially because of their sin. If you flip your Bibles over, we're not going to have a chance to read it, but just to summarize to chapter 32 in Exodus, you should see at the top headline of your Bibles, the golden calf incident. This all happens, by the way, around the same timetable. This is not like months or years later. The golden calf incident is when Moses finally comes down with stone tablets. Stone tablets that say, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols, a graven image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. One pastor, I don't even know who it was, but I remember listening to a sermon on these texts. He said, especially in light of many of you that are about to go and celebrate a wedding this afternoon from one of our church members or two of our church members, Exodus 19 and 20 and 21 and those surrounding chapters is like the wedding ceremony of God and his people joining in a covenant together. It's the Sinai covenant. And marriage is a covenant, so there is, I think, a good parallel of illustration here. So imagine, you've got a married couple. And let's not imagine our, our friends in this illustration, by the way. But since you'll be at a wedding, I mean, just the sheer atrocity of what is happening in this text. You've got two people coming together as you read the story, you find that God is saying, I want you to be the treasured possession. I say, yes, marry me. And they say, yes, we will obey everything. And they both say, I do. And they make covenant together. And they can't even get to the reception before the bride runs off with another man. Like, I don't want you to imagine that for today, but like, because that's so, it's so impossible. It's so ridiculous of a thought. You're like, no, no, that would never, ever happen, right? Let's pray not. But that is exactly what happens here. They are committing adultery in between the wedding ceremony and the reception. Moses can't even come down the mountain before they've already slept with another god. So this is why when you turn your Bibles to Exodus 33, Look at verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Keep reading the book of Exodus. You will find that the problem of God's presence being with his people is getting worse. It's getting more serious. It's more problematic. In verse 4 of chapter 33, you'll see that when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And then Moses came in on behalf of them, mediated for them. It says in verse 11 that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face in chapter 33 as a man speaks to his friend. This is again a God's invisible, so it's not as if at this moment he's talking about God, Yahweh, having a face. It's about the closeness of the relationship between Moses and Yahweh. And at this point, I want you to realize that Moses says he wants his people to dwell with God's presence. Look at verse 16. Exodus chapter 33. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? 
Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Everything we just talked about in Exodus 19, about treasured possession, holy nation, flowing out to the nations, Moses gets it, doesn't he? Well, the only way that's going to happen, the only way we're going to be distinct and set apart from everyone else is if you come with us, God, and you just said you're not coming with us. This is a disastrous word. And so in verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses then just says, all right, God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand, away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Then in chapter 34, that very prediction happens. God reveals himself, not his face, not the full brilliance of his glory to Moses, but his back, so to say. And Moses quickly bows down and worships. Look down at chapter 34, verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed down his head toward the earth and worshiped. That's the response when you're in God's presence. Even if you are a mediator, a holy person like Moses. Moses only even saw his back. And he falls down. He worships. Imagine, imagine if you were able to see the fire coming down, the all-consuming presence of God right here. Do you think you would walk out of this place like, oh, that was a nice Sunday. Oh, I checked that off my box. Do you see why at Embassy Church, it's not really our goal to just go through religious rituals and routines, but rather to be transformed by the image of God, the power of His presence dwelling with us? That's why we want to gather every week. When you think about God, do you think He's this glorious? Does it lead you, as we sang earlier, to shout His name? Lord of all the earth, we shout Your name, we shout Your name, filling up the sky with endless praise, endless praise. Yahweh, Yahweh. These people fall on their face. They shout. There's joy. There's trembling. There's a whole mixture of emotions and feelings. Moses quickly bowed down at once. I love that it tells us it's, it was quick. Didn't take time. What's going on? You know, down, quick. All the people at the bottom of the mountain, what was their response? They were afraid. They trembled. They said, we're going to stay away and stand far off. Some of you might remember that in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees a vision, a prophecy, and it says, I saw the Lord, and immediately you want to ask, so what did he see? And what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What would you see? And Isaiah tells us a king sitting on his throne, ruling with authority, sitting, reigning, high and lofty, he says with a train of his robe filling the temple. Two massive creatures called seraphim, probably not the technical word we'd call angel, but these massive heavenly beings 
Without sin, imagine this. You have these seraphim that without sin, they've got two wings covering their face, two wings covering their legs, two wings are flying. These six wings are revealing their lack of ability to be in God's presence. How do we know that they're so massive, by the way? Because there's only two that are described. How do we know that they're big and massive? Well, it says in verse 4 of Isaiah 6 that it was from the voice of the creatures that the temple doorposts shook. Now, I sometimes preach a little loud, right? But the building doesn't start shaking. How big would you need to be in order for your voice to create a big, mighty structure like the columns of a temple in Jerusalem to start shaking at the sound of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's why I say they're massive in Isaiah's mind. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're shouting his holiness and his glory. There is no other attribute of God that is repeated like this in the Bible. If you're not used to reading the Bible or old Hebrew language, you need to realize it's like all capital letters. Not everything has the same emphasis when it's all caps. You know, if we text each other and you're in all caps, some people might think you're excited. Some people might think you're yelling at them. The whole Hebrew Bible is like all caps. So how do you know if something's shouting, emphasizing something? And the short answer is repetition. And there's no other time that the Bible says, love, love, love. Peace, peace, peace. Grace, grace, grace. All great attributes of God. But the key defining attribute of God is that he is holy, holy, holy. Consecrated, devoted for a special purpose is what that word kadosh means. Remember a few weeks ago in the Exodus 3 sermon. It's like an operating room. It's set apart. It's different. But it's devoted for a specific purpose. It's not just separate. It has something specific in mind. This is what God is like. He is set apart and so devoted and consecrated unlike anything else. So if you were to use one word, when someone says, what comes to your mind when you think of God, you can't go wrong with holy. For when we speak of any other attribute, we should speak about his holiness in light of those attributes. When we speak about his essence, his being, being triune, three persons and one, he is unlike any other created being, unlike any other God, who is holy like the triune God among the heavens. When we speak about his inability to change. We should declare that he is holy, that he never changes the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who is there among the gods that never changes like Yahweh? When we speak about his love, we should describe his love as a holy love, unlike any other love, not like love of humans, but love toward enemies, loving the unlovable. He loves you, Embassy Church, if we're going to be a church that loves the outcasts and loves those different from us, we must know the holy love that God has lavished upon us. Can you think of a greater difference between God and us in terms of categories that exist? Creature and creator. And that creator loves 
his creatures. Is there anyone any more unlovable than a wife who just turned her back on the bridegroom right after the wedding ceremony? He has every right to say, I am not going with these people. It is a holy love. It is unlike any other love, a holy patience, a holy righteousness, a holy wisdom, a holy compassion and mercy and grace and justice and wrath and sovereignty. That's what our God is like. So what do you think about when you think about God? Think about his utter difference from anything and everything you've ever thought of compared to this creation. By the way, what does Isaiah do when he sees the holy, holy, holy character of God's presence in this vision? He says, woe is me, I am ruined, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live and dwell amongst people of unclean lips. I'm dead, whoa, I'm about to die, I'm about to be consumed. What would you do if you were in God's presence? What would you say? You know, people talk about it all the time. You know, when I get to heaven, I've got some questions for God. No, you won't. No. Let me just settle all that up for you right now. You, you won't have questions. If you have words, I'd be amazed if they were anything other than holy, holy, holy. Moses bowed down at once and worshiped. All the people at the bottom of the mountain were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. Isaiah cried out, woe is me, I am ruined, I am undone. Well, you know, that is the Old Testament, and the Old Testament's kind of scary, and that's where God's like a fire. Jesus is like, you know, a tender sheep lover. He's so gentle and meek and mild. Then why in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus performs a miracle of telling Peter and the other disciples, hey, you guys keep fishing on the wrong side of the boat. Just throw your net on the other side of the boat. And these fishermen are like, does this guy know what he's talking about? And so they're like, all right, whatever, we'll do it. So they throw the net on the other side of the boat. And if you know the story, you know it's the most massive catch of fish that these fishermen have ever seen in their lives. Luke chapter 5. No smoke, no fire, no thunder. But the fullness of God's presence dwelt in bodily form, and Peter got it. And do you know what it says he did? Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. It's the most consistent theme, I think, in all of the Bible. Every time somebody comes and encounters the full presence of God, and it clicks for them, the response is the same. So many people say they want to go to heaven. There's a lot of people that want to go to heaven, they just don't want this God to be there. Read the book of Revelation. This is what he's like. Read Revelation 4, read Revelation 5. More holy, holy, holy. More bowing and putting the crowns before him. How would you respond? What do you think? Is there hope for us? There's a problem. There's a chasm between God and man, and there's a problem that we need a solution. And so let's finish with thinking about Jesus' pain, his solution to this massive problem. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says that he who was 
righteous became unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. He being Jesus, the righteous, perfect Son of God, fully embodying the fullness of God's presence, dwelt amongst the earth and amongst all these people, and they said, depart from me, when they knew who he was. Demons shouted at him, whoa, what are you going to do to us? And he became unrighteous. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we would become the righteousness of God. But I love the language of 1 Peter 3.18, so that he might bring us to God. The whole picture of Exodus 19 is one of descending and ascending. It's one of Moses being the mediator, the man who's trying to bring God's presence to the people and bring the people to the presence of God. God always has to come down, as Andy said earlier in the service. God initiates. We cannot reach our way to the heavens Read Genesis chapter 11. Do you remember that Tower of Babel story? Ascending yourself by man's effort to the heavens is the epitome of our pride and our arrogance. You can never ascend to the throne room of God. You need God to come down. That's why in Genesis chapter 11, when he sees that little pathetic tower, he says, oh, let's look down and see what these people have made. Why is it that even though they're at the top of Mount Sinai, that he still has to come down to his presence? This should repeat again and again as you read the story. Notice it when you read your Bibles. God must come down. He must descend. And so, in the person of Jesus, God descended all the way down to the form of a human baby in a feeding trough. How much more down can he go? He walked the earth. He suffered and died on a cross for our sins, which should again connect some dots, should it? Where do you see the display in the New Testament of the fullness of God's love and his holy love and the fullness of God's wrath, his holy wrath? Well, a mountain called Calvary. For Jesus did not just descend, he, as John's gospel is going to say, he ascended and hung on a cross. He died for sinners. This, my friends, is what you should see. And how can you see the cross? Seriously, I want to ask this question to all of us. How can we gaze at the cross week in and week out and not see the majesty and the glory of God and not be transformed by love and mercy and justice and wrath and patience and compassion all in one moment as God's glory is being revealed? When was the last time you felt just utterly undone and broken and naked and exposed and in desperate need of a Savior? Look at the cross. See how far he descended in his pain so that you and I could ascend with him to the right hand of the Father. Think of it for a moment now. No one can see God and live. No one can dwell in his presence. And right now, a human being, literally a human being, is dwelling in the presence of God. His name is Jesus. And he is on our behalf, dwelling in the face of God's throne room. And he is praying and pleading for you. This is what Exodus 19 is ultimately pointing toward. The God who descends in the person of Jesus will ascend again so that way heaven and earth will come back together again. And then a further descent will happen. God will pour out his presence through his Holy Spirit so that you and I could be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a chosen people called out to proclaim the excellencies of this marvelous grace. This is how it works. And if you're not following all of that, here's a picture. (laughs) 
a picture and an image of God's massive holiness leading to your growing awareness of your sinfulness. And so this is what it's like for most of us before we become Christians. Your sense of God's holiness is nothing, almost. I mean, probably. It is only when you encounter the living God that you start to see, wow, the difference, the chasm, the gap between God and me is great. There's a problem. But the cross is the solution that bridges the gap, the descent and ascent of Jesus. And the longer you go in your Christian life, the more you will appreciate and wonder. The cross gets bigger and bigger. You only know yourself to be a greater sinner the longer you go on. Some of you first came to faith in Jesus real recently. Praise God. All you're going to know is, I am a great, great sinner. But hallelujah, we have a greater Savior. Woe is me, I am undone. The people trembled. Moses quickly fell down on his face. The Christian life that we live here is to stand before the holy glory of God, fall on our faces week in and week out here at Embassy Church as we see that there is no God like our God who comes down off his high and lofty throne and becomes humble. There's no God who causes you just to fear him for the sake of his great might. No, this God took on flesh and he wants you to fear him because of his great mercy. He fell on his face in his human flesh before the presence of the Father. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, if it possible, take this cup from me, but your, not my will, yours be done. He went up to the mountain and died, and the fire fell down and consumed him. He did not want to pull back like the people of Israel. He leaned in. Don't you see? You and I have the privilege to be in God's presence and fall on our faces before a holy God who has every right to destroy us, to consume us, but because Jesus fell on his face, because Jesus prayed in the presence of his Father and was destroyed for our sakes, we now have the privilege, the amazing privilege, to gaze at the cross and be transformed. If you need a little extra reading, I've highlighted maybe 20 different passages of Scripture to read. Well, here's another one. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 connects the stories that we were just talking about in Exodus and says... Just like Moses came down from the mountain and was radiating with the glory from just being in God's presence, so much more. We now, by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, can behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And when you behold his glory, here's, here's the language. This is your go-to scripture for how I grow as a Christian. As we behold him, we will be transformed by him from one degree of glory to another. So let's continue doing that. Let's pray.